Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Jodie Lee Trembath, together with my fellow familiar stranger, Simon Theobald. Hello. And we've got two very special guests today with us, fellow PhD anthropology candidates here at the Australian National University, Sana Ashraf. Hi. And Bruma Rios Mendoza. Hello. Sana is a Pakistani anthropologist and PhD student here at ANU studying blasphemy related violence in Pakistan. And Bruma is a Mexican anthropologist and PhD student at ANU doing research in West Papua, learning from Biak people about rituality, worldviews, and personhood. So this month for our panel, we're going to have a theme. We'll be talking about decolonization, what it is, where it applies, and why it's so important. So I'm actually going to start us off today with what I've been thinking about this week, which is what decolonization actually means. So if you Google decolonization, you get websites talking about decolonizing whole countries, talking about decolonizing specific industries, particular spaces, even decolonizing one's own mind. And a lot of the hits are about land and the end of colonial military occupation and about things that happened in the past, though, of course, the histories are different in somewhere like Africa or in South Asia or in the Pacific. So then there are lots of other hits about the need to decolonize thinking or decolonize societal ways of doing things. And that is really based on an enduring colonial legacy. And if you Google decolonize Australia, you get something quite different because Australia is still colonized, right? So the British imperial forces just never withdrew. And Simon and I are very conscious that we are that legacy, that we're here making this podcast on Ngunnawal and Ngambari land. So I guess my first question for the panel is, what's your understanding of the term decolonization? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean across different contexts as well? Decolonization for me means realizing and recognizing the privilege that we exercise and hold in everyday life, in our everyday interactions. And it is not just limited to the governments and the militaries anymore. It's the various organizations, institutions, universities, development sector, a lot of other areas where this privilege is exercised. Well, I would only add to that that decolonizing, decolonization, it's always a process. It will always be and it will always keep on going because there are many new ways in which Power is inflicted over others and subjugates them because there will emerge new ways in which people are being subjugated. So this decolonizing has to keep on going. What do you think? I will say this with a recognition of my own positionality that I'm sitting here as a white man from a settler colonial country. So I can only really speak about what I think decolonization means for for me, from that position. But I think it's it's about recognising that for those of us, I think those of us particularly, I mean, it's it's a broader, it's a much broader topic than we can really cover in, in any 
five-minute segment. And I think Bremer and Sana have already kind of covered some broader issues of it, but to kind of boil it down to the, the real settler colonial perspective. As someone who lives in a, in a settler colonial state, I would say that decolonization is, is a recognition of the mental and physical violence that was meted out to Indigenous people by European settlers and the fact that that was not just a, a process that happened at one particular point in time but has been an ongoing process that continues to this day. Okay, so that kind of works in some contexts and then in other contexts it doesn't seem to apply so much, right? So if we talk about colonisation for a moment instead of decolonisation, if you're somewhere like Sweden, for example, Sweden considers itself sort of separate from the whole idea of colonisation, but does somewhere like Sweden need to decolonise in the same ways that somewhere like Australia does and in the same ways that somewhere like India does where the British forces have removed themselves? Like, what does it mean to colonise in this day and age compared to in the past? Okay. I will think that at least for the case you are talking about, they would need to be decolonised too. Colonisation, it's not only of, about territories, it's also about ways of engaging between each other. And they had to conform to the rules no, of the world system, mm-hmm. yeah, that still it's based on this disparity. So even countries of, in Scandinavia that they haven't, haven't been actively colonizers or haven't been colonized either, but still being part of the world system, we are all kind of in this domination by the status quo of this disparity. That segues us quite nicely, actually, into our next segment. So, Simon, what are you thinking about? Um, What I've been thinking about is why decolonization is important. And I think that for a lot of people out there in listening land, something like decolonization can seem such a big topic that it's almost hard to think about. But I think it's really important for us to engage with because it comes down to ultimately for two, two reasons, at least for me. And I think one of them is more academic and one of them is much more kind of generalist. So most generally, it's a matter of justice. I think we have to realistically grapple with the fact that people who have been colonized have not some kind of, again, not a historical gripe, but a legitimate ongoing claim to having been meted out a historical injustice that deserves to be corrected in the same way that you would expect an injustice done to you to be corrected the second point for me, I guess, is a more academic issue, but I think it's a matter of kind of academic integrity. It's about recognising that decolonizing the work that we do, allowing a plurality of voices to be heard, bringing out something in like anthropology, like bringing our participants into the creation of knowledge rather than just writing about them. All of these things actually create, I think, a more honest and a more valid anthropological project than something that has historically been very much about a kind of us versus them, the, the, the informant versus the anthropologist. I think if we want to do good anthropology these days, it's no longer to do, possible to do it without some kind of effort towards decolonizing. And at least in the way it's been framed in this, which is recognizing one's privilege vis-a-vis others. I guess so for me, the question then becomes, why do other people think decolonization is important? Well, Macron would disagree with you. According to him, even Africa and America and all that have benefited from being colonized. 
Well, that ah. has been always an, an argument that has been there, no? Like, oh, because how would humans Develop. achieve all this development in technology, in knowledge, you know, academia, sciences and all that without this coming to other places and taking all for for the benefit of a few? We should keep creating other ways of relating with each other instead of just perpetrating this dynamic of disadvantage between different people. And when I say different people, it's not only a color, it's yeah, class, it's also about feeling entitled because maybe you are in a way the chosen ones, whatever, but it's still whatever thing that would make from difference disparity, that's where the problem is, and that's what it has to be addressed and keep being addressed as humans. We have to keep creating ways to address that and change that to be more just. So you've both, uh, both Brimmer and Simon have now used the word just, justice. For the people who have all of the power and all of the privilege, or the majority of it, what, like, how do we convince people who have those most privileged positions that this is in the best interest not just of people they don't care about but also of themselves? First, I think it's not only about convincing these people at the top because now it kind of triples, is that the word? Trickles. Trickles down, no? And we all participate in that structure, in that dynamic. But I think one, my particular point of view, is that one big issue is that we think we are supposed to be comfortable yeah, and as long as we keep trying to do everything to be comfortable, we won't achieve any change. I think making decolonization convincingly beneficial to the people who are in positions of power is basically making it all about them again, where it's not about them and it does not have to be beneficial to them. Why does everything, including decolonization, have to be beneficial to the people in power to make it like make it sound like a convincing target or aim? I would add to that. I think again, it's my own opinion that we have historically put the responsibility of these kind of mean to be drastic changes to the grassroots. And because they are the ones that are suffering the most and they are the ones that have less time and really less leverage Leverage. in it. Yeah. So for me, I think it's more uh, middle class should be we should be more active on it. Yeah, because first we have the privilege of being educated, most likely to have permanent jobs. And we also have economical power. Yeah. So if we do try to be more active in making a change, we have more leverage than the grassroots, yeah? Because it's, we just load it on the uh, lower classes when they are already have so many struggles and their everyday life is a struggle with this, mm. no? That's the only thing I would want to add, that responsibility must be more focused on middle class because we do have more leverage. Actually, I was just wondering about the responsibility on the middle classes point that Bruma was making. And I'm thinking that anthropologists and we in the academia generally probably fall into that category. And we are extremely comfortable in what we do and also have the leverage to be able to talk about these issues. But what happens is 
even though we claim that anthropology is a discipline that aims to bring plurality and different people's voices together and value people and cultures despite the colonial history of the discipline itself we are not fully aware of the extent of privilege we have as anthropologists and also the dynamics of power within the within the academy where white anthropologists still have a lot of power and credibility just because of their skin color i feel that even to to this day indigenous scholars and people of color they're still seen as somehow visitors in anthropology mm. they're not co-producers of knowledge they are here and they have to establish their credibility and worth to be taken seriously as anthropologists an anthropologist is still a white person who will or will not let the people of color into the discipline and decide whether their anthropology is worth it or not what do you guys think about the politics of knowledge production and the colonial relations in that context and also how these relations still, still operate in the university itself i think at least in our discipline anthropology there are like different angles of this that either were confronted with this structure of powers and so we should be reflexive on it no so one angle is us doing field work no so our relationship with the people we are learning from in the discipline we have talked about that long time yeah? it's still not completely positively resolved but working on it another one is even the way we produce knowledge what we take as knowledge and even our methodologies for it how is it all comes from a specific line of tradition of knowledge when we as anthropologists we are constantly learning from other traditions of knowledge so why that hasn't come in really to in in our own ways of creating knowledge mm-hmm. and third in the dynamics in academia of what uh, sana was talking about no and how it's still predominantly white anthropologists that have the positions of power in academia on that regard for example just it's it might seem silly but it's not when you live it constantly it kind of gets into you and gets into you no from my own experience every time i meet an anthropologist here the first question they make to me is why being a mexican you are studying west papua why not I don't think they ask the same way to other people that are not that don't come from a usually place of study of anthropology. I I haven't seen it. I've been in the same situation with other schoolmates meeting the same person and they and if they are they come from either they are Australians, they come from the US or from England or whatever they 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 don't get that question. They are not that's not asked because if you're mexican you yeah, should like, to study mexican. mexican yeah yeah why mm. are you interested if you are australian why you are studying i don't know somewhere else in the country in the world when you are also in australia you have plenty that you could do research on if you are from the us same wise and it's not only about doing research with first nations or whatever it's with whoever we are humans and we can do re- anthropological research with any group of humans no so being asked that once and again and again and again is like i end up as questioning so what shouldn't i can't i or what is behind that 
you don't have the right set of um, physical features to be able to choose the topic and the people that you want to study because historically it has been the white people studying whoever they wanted to and even now they get get upset when there are too many natives studying themselves because it's somehow taking away their privilege to study them but right. because it happens and it affects us all yes. you yes. know and, yes. and this this idea of who who can study who you know who can learn from who because even study that word i'm studying mm-hmm. what are you what it's it's not a chair or something no you are stu- you are working you are learning from other people mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. so why some groups can't have the freedom to learn from whoever they choose to no or mm-hmm. can many times you don't choose it it kind of chooses you no and so why why not why some are entitled to and some others we are not okay so where does the topic of representation come into this discussion that we're having because we we know that we talk a lot in anthropology particularly about who can study who and and again i used this, the word study then didn't i so who can learn from who and also who can speak on behalf of who and lots of people do say that you know maybe we should move to a model where people only study people who are like them whatever that may look like so where does that idea come into would that be a better way of decolonizing would that actually make things worse what do you think i don't think there should be any limitation or prescription to it because if you do learn from your own the group you belong to or don't it has its own complexities in both cases it still will enrich knowledge of human beings no so either studying someone and it's not of, of like learning from a group that it's you don't belong naturally to the, to it it creates a specific complexity that that will allow you to learn in some specifics in a particular way and the constant coming and going of you being reflect on it will also enrich whatever you are learning yeah same as when you uh, well not exactly the same but it kind of it has its own enriching complexity if you do learn from the group you naturally belong to it has its own complications but it also has its own advantages Yeah so I don't think it has to be either just either one of them. I think we should be free to learn from whoever we are keen to. Yeah and the point is to enrich this the knowledge of the diversity of of humankind and that's not only ethnically or of ethnic differences but it's also in in the same ethnic group there are different uh, worldviews and ways to engage in in social dynamics no and so it's either case of of studying with your own or others it will deepen human knowledge not only for the discipline but in a broad sense so you chose to study well is that true did you choose to study in pakistan because it's your country yes i chose to study this because it's my country and not just because it's my country and it's convenient for me to study my country which is also a perception that anthropologists and academics usually have of native and indigenous scholars that we go to study our own countries because it's convenient and we're not really being hard working anthropologists if you're doing that which is really not true 
but it's simply because I can relate more to uh, and I feel strongly towards a certain cause, a certain certain social phenomenon which affects my life and my family's life in so many different ways. So it's a more personal and political reason that I'm studying this. But I have met in my life, I have met some really amazing scholars who who know Pakistan better than me and they're white. And so it's basically to say that, no, your skin color and your nationality and where you come from does not define how you can or whether you can study a particular country or not. But being conscious of the privileges you bring to the study or to the field is really important because if you are not conscious and aware of your privilege, you can sound and be very patronizing towards a culture which is not okay so yes there are both examples there are people who are who study a country and then they think that they are experts on that country nobody's an expert on anything if somebody says that hey i'm an expert in pakistan i'm really suspicious of them because i don't say that i'm an expert in pakistan and nobody is even if you're born in pakistan and have studied pakistan your whole life you know a little bit of the whole big reality that this really complex country or field is and that's true for any field or any topic so people posing as experts on certain areas or experts on certain people need to check their privilege and also be conscious of what they're representing so yes the the questions of representation representation are really important but with deeper engagement and recognition of our own insignificance in the grand scheme of things and how much we can know and how much we're capable of is really important. Actually, I think that's a really powerful note to finish up on. Can I say thank you so much to both of you for being on the show because I think this is such an important topic and I appreciate you sharing the perspectives that you have. So thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. That's Julia Brown, Ian Pollock, Simon Theobald and myself. And this month we're also welcoming some new team members, Deanna Caddo, Matthew Fung and Sarah Passmore. Have you subscribed to The Familiar Strange podcast yet? You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. You can find a transcription of this episode at the base of the episode's show notes, which also include a list of all the books and papers mentioned today on our website, thefamiliarstrange.com. And while you're there, check out our blog about anthropology's role in the world. And if that floats your boat and you decide you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Our music's by Pete Dabrow, and special thanks today to our fabulous interns, Alina Rizvi and Elisa Asmolovskaya, as well as to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. So that's it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange.